The Energy Gang is brought to you by Aurora Solar. If you could ask 20 experts in the solar industry one question, what would it be? Well, this June, you'll have the opportunity to do just that. Join over 4,000 solar professionals on June 8th and 9th for Aurora Solar's second annual virtual summit. Hear from and interact with industry leaders, policymakers, sales experts, and more. Get your questions ready and save your spot at empower.aurorasolar.com slash energygang, or just go to the show notes and click that link. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. It's been 20 years since America's first offshore wind farm was proposed. After a bruising fight, it never got in the water, and the offshore boom never came. But now the U.S. government is vowing to expand the industry by a thousand-fold within a decade. Will it really happen this time? Plus, we judge Biden's first 100 days, and the United Nations judges natural gas. Catherine Hamilton is my co-host. Hi, Catherine. How are you? I am great. Remember last week I talked about how I could rip off my mask when I was running? Well, this week we're going to a Washington Nationals baseball game. So things are getting back. Masked or unmasked? Oh, I'm sure we have to wear masks. I don't care. That's fine. It's a baseball game. Do you wear fancy masks with logos on them and designs, or are you just a straightforward mask person? I have some like attractive flowered masks that have um, filters in them that I bought, but then I also made a bunch of ones that were kind of the lightweight kind that I could run in. So they're all, they're reversible with really cute fabrics. <laughs> Catherine's the chair and co-founder of 38 North Solutions. Ramez, what about you? Are you like a fancy mask wearer or a medical mask wearer? I spent most of 2020 and still today with a mask that says vote. My husband has that mask. It's a great mask. I love that. I have that mask in three colors. So that's my my go-to. I just went straight to medical masks. I have all these cloth masks that never fit quite right. So I was just like, give me the give me the middle of the road medical masks. And those have worked just fine for me. Uh, Ramez Nam is with us this week as our co-host. He is a man of many talents, an award-winning science fiction author, a technologist, an investor, an advisor to companies, and an expert on the trends driving climate solutions. Ramez, welcome. What did I miss in that in that bio? I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. <laughs> it's great to be here with you, Stephen and Captain. So you've had wind on your mind lately. Why is that? Well, I've been working at a startup that is uh, a stealth mode startup in the wind power space. And sadly, I can't say too much more about that. But it's just been a remarkable to see the potential uh, and the pace of cost reductions and improvements in capacity factor of wind, both onshore and off. And we've seen, you know, since 2015, NRL's been putting out these reports saying bigger, taller wind turbines with bigger rotors on land in the U.S. could have 60-65% capacity factors and lower the cost. And we've seen this boom in Europe of offshore wind that as recently as 2017, nobody thought offshore would ever be price competitive with onshore power generation. Uh, but we started in 2017, we saw in Europe these renewables auctions for offshore, where offshore just came in at zero subsidy, zero you know contract for differences, and price competitive with wholesale power prices at you know 50 plus percent capacity factor. So now today, there's this new report out from Ryan Weiser and others at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab looking at the cost declines that have happened in wind power, both onshore and off, since 2015. And literally, the price 
of wind power has dropped by a factor of two to four faster than the consensus of experts was in 2015 over those five years. So there's just, we love to talk about solar. I love to talk about solar and batteries, but wind power is just coming on strong and getting cheaper and steadier at a pace much faster than expected. And it's clear that the United States has done a pretty good job of utilizing that resource onshore, but we have been abysmal at utilizing it offshore. I mean, the lack of progress on offshore wind in this country is one of the most baffling stories in energy, in my opinion. The technology and resource availability are tremendous. As you just outlined, Ramez, the cost declines have been historic. Europe has de-risked the technology, proven you can do it at scale, at low cost. You can do it safely for fishing and tourism. States here are setting targets left and right and setting up auctions. And at a national scale, people really want it. And yet we simply have not been able to get any meaningful amounts of offshore wind capacity in the water. We figured out how to break rocks and inject chemicals underneath schools and houses to get flammable gas out of the ground. But we still haven't figured out how to put wind turbines miles off the coast away from people. It's a political problem that has prevented us from solving logistics challenges. But that may be about to change because in late March, the Biden team said it plans to accelerate offshore wind development with a goal of getting 30 gigawatts of projects finished by 2030 and 110 gigawatts by 2050. And by comparison, we have 30 megawatts in the water now. Europe has about 25 gigawatts operational. Catherine, what is the Biden team trying to do right now to jumpstart offshore wind? And and will it work? Yes, it will work, I think. But but that's... That's in part because of the administration, but also in part because states have all these goals and, you know, all of everything ready from the state point of view. But what the administration has said is, of course, 30 gigawatts by 2030. And they're taking as they have with everything and all of government approach. So every single agency that can is involved. So Department of Transportation Maritime Administration has like a notice of funding opportunity for port authorities to improve some of the ports. So the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management in the Department of Interior is the one that has the leases, and they've been moving forward on those. Now, some of this was a little bit held up in the Trump administration, so we have to recover a little bit from that. And then Gina Raimondo, who heads Department of Commerce, runs NOAA which is the National Oceanic Administration, what they do is they consult with BOEM on protections and research. And remember, Raimondo was the one that got Black Island done off the coast of Rhode Island. And it was a really great project to get started, extremely well-received. It has increased tourism, recreational boating and fishing off the coast of Rhode Island. So she is a super supporter. So all of that is in place from the administration standpoint. And then the states on the coast have all these goals for clean energy and when offshore wind just feeds right into those. So all that's great. States have been setting up auctions for years. The Obama administration tried to speed up regulation and approval of projects. And we have a bunch of new targets over the last few years for offshore wind capacity. But like still, we haven't been able to get it done. Part of that was a slowdown within the Trump administration around the approvals process. But some of it is also that these projects take a long time and they're logistically challenging. But like there's still this fear of legal pushback. And I wonder, like, could all these pieces be in place under the Biden administration, but we still 
can't get projects done? Is there still something about the U.S. that will prevent us from actually getting these projects in the water? What do you think, Ramez? I think there might be, but I, I think, you know, I wouldn't be quite as harsh on the U.S. Like, obviously, we should be going faster, but it bears understanding what happened in Europe, right? In Europe, offshore wind didn't happen because everybody thought, oh, offshore wind is going to be this amazing, cheap technology. When offshore wind started in Europe, no one thought it would ever be competitive with onshore. The reason it started was because of NIMBY. Europe is higher population density than the U.S., and you just couldn't build much onshore wind anymore. And so the only way for European countries to meet their targets was to go offshore. And Europe is also blessed with the North Sea is a very unique place. It's got super high wind speeds, and it's a shallow sort of shielded sea with a sandy bottom that makes offshore wind construction really easy. And sort of like the Germans didn't realize that when they started the energy vendor and started subsidizing solar and wind, that would lead to these incredible cost declines in solar and wind. They didn't realize that when they started the offshore wind build-out in Europe, that it would lead to offshore wind suddenly getting cheap as well. But these things do have five-year timelines. Like when, you, when you see an auction signed when the project is complete, is an average of something like five years. So it makes sense to a certain extent, that the U.S., which has lower population density, has better solar resources, has other, you know, cheaper natural gas, sadly, uh, has better onshore wind resources in less populated areas than Europe, didn't see offshore as, as vital. And really, it got kickstarted in a sense because we saw these cost declines in Europe. Now, that, that said, you know, I think there's still, there's two things that have been big blockers to offshore in the U.S. we haven't talked about. One is still NIMBY, you know, famously the Kennedys not wanting to see uh, offshore turbines uh, from their beach houses, right? So now we're talking about stuff that's over the horizon that can't be seen. But the other thing nobody's talked about and Biden is not addressing is the Jones Act, which says that the, the ships that deliver things domestically in the U.S. have to be U.S., constructed, flagged, and, and crewed ships. And that means that these jack-up ships, of which there's only, I don't know, a dozen, less than 20 in the world, that can erect offshore wind turbines, have to be made in the U.S. And because the Jones Act is still in place, and because Biden and a lot of Democratic senators still want the Jones Act, because it gives jobs to U.S. ports and shipyards to build these ships, we can't take advantage of any of these jackup ships that have already been built for Europe or Asia to deploy offshore wind in the U.S. And that's utterly ridiculous, in my opinion. So, I mean, we have the first U.S. jackup ship being built by Dominion right now so that we can start to install these things. But we're, we're tying a hand behind our back on offshore wind. When I said this is a uniquely American problem, what I actually meant was the NIMBY piece. So if we think back to Cape Wind... The project had a power purchase agreement in place. It went through most of its reviews. It was looking, for all intents and purposes, like nearly a done deal. But the legal battles basically killed it. And then it got hung up in late stage regulatory problems, and it just fell apart. And I worry that that will hurt other projects in the U.S. that may not be a factor elsewhere. But also this access to infrastructure piece is really important, Ramez, as well, and that's unique to the American market. Catherine, what else? Are there other areas that need to get fixed in America right now to make this happen? 
Yeah, so I reached out to Laura Morton, who's Senior Director of Policy and Regulatory Affairs for Offshore at the American Clean Power Association, which was formerly OEA. And she talked a lot about the stakeholder process and bringing people along and sitting for hours and hours and hours with fishermen and the science community and environmental nonprofits and communities and making sure that everybody was on board with this. Because as we know, the Kennedys had a lot of power. It was it was a NIMBY issue, but it was a lot of other things too. And so you know, Block Island was able to show commercial fisher folk that you could do this and coexist. And so I think that was an, a really important proof point in the U.S. And now the potential is so enormous. I mean, the U.S. has 2 million acres of federal waters that could be auctioned in 2021. And the jobs, like 80,000 jobs a year could be created between 2025, give it a little time, and 2035. It's the turbine manufacturing and supply chain. It's construction industry, transportation and port industries, general services industries that all are around those ports, operations and maintenance. So there are just so many benefits. And I think once we get started on this, it's going to be pretty incredible. There are already auctions in New York, California, North Carolina, South Carolina that could support 28 gigawatts of offshore wind and generate $1.2 billion in U.S. Treasury revenue. And then other auctions in the Gulf of Maine and in California, which of course is going to have to be floating, would generate another $500 million and support nine gigawatts of offshore wind. So the numbers are incredible once we get going. That's all well and good. And I think that's exactly right. And just the resource potential here is some of the best in the world. But if I think back to many promises that presidents make, I mean, Obama wanted a million electric cars on the road, but the infrastructure wasn't there to make that happen, nor were the consumer buying habits or the EV technology for that matter. But And so like, it is totally possible to get to this goal. And all those factors that you outlined are certainly in offshore winds favor. But Our port infrastructure is underdeveloped for offshore wind. There's still a lot of development we need to do locally to be able to support the ships and the turbines and the the gearboxes and all the other equipment coming through on a consistent basis. And, you know, if we can't get the, the shipping piece resolved either, that could be an issue. And I just I worry that there are enough factors here that still could derail this goal, even though it is totally doable in theory and quite important. I think that's a legitimate worry. And I think it's going to take a while. And I think what you're going to see is, you know, these things don't grow linearly. Offshore wind in Europe did not grow linearly. It started off very small, very small turbines offshore, very small farms and a small number of gigawatts or megawatts initially per year. And it took a while to get that infrastructure in place, get the jackup ships in place, figure out more siting issues, figure out how to cost-effectively lay HVDC out to these sites and so on. So it's going to be, you know, getting a ball rolling. And I would not, when you think about any of these targets, I would not assume a linear path between here and there. It's going to be, you know, a a curving upward slope, just as it has been for deployment of of wind and solar on land. I will say, you know, something that, that Catherine pointed out that is actually quite important is the need for floating offshore and how it might actually help us solve some of these problems. Europe, you know, in the North Sea doesn't need floating. It's shallow sea, sandy bottom, it's easy. In the U.S., the Northeast is suitable for bottom mount, you know, fixed to the seabed 
uh, offshore wind. But if you want to talk about the West Coast, you're going to talk about floating. And the floating is a, a very new technology. Floating also has the advantage that it can be put further from shore and thus over the horizon and out of sight. And that potentially helps resolve a lot of these NIMBY issues. Because these NIMBY issues, even in the Northeast, for these new offshore fixed-bottom farms, still exists. There's still these debates about, is this ruining my viewshed? And for whatever reason in Europe, uh, while NIMBY was a bigger issue for onshore wind, NIMBY doesn't seem to be such a hassle for offshore in the North Sea, even though people can see it. Uh, but in the U.S., in the Northeast, we, we still have this concern that if people can see the offshore wind farms, that they they object to it. So if we can make, if floating technology comes along and gets cheap enough, then we have the chance to create these offshore wind farms that are a bit further from shore and can't be seen from shore. And that, I think, rectifies a lot of issues. It also simplifies things on ports, because instead of uh, you know, needing a whole lot of specialized gear. They can be sort of built in relatively ordinary facilities and then towed out uh, using relatively conventional tugs uh, rather than jack-up ships. So that would also eliminate some of that bottleneck. So that's, you know, I don't want to ever rely on a technological panacea, uh, but floating wind, I think, is is also massively underestimated. I think that may ultimately be a bigger deal globally than what we think of as offshore wind today with uh, the bottom-mount technology. Yeah, another thing is that former co-host Jigger Shaw, his loan program office just announced in March $3 billion available under Title 17 for offshore wind. And then they more recently announced $5 billion in loan guarantees uh, through the loan program office for high-voltage DC transmission projects. And they're going to need some of those uh, for offshore wind as well. Are there any other technological or economic developments that you're following, Ramez, either in offshore wind or in onshore wind that may be consistent across both of those areas? What are the things that stand out for you? Well, I think the other thing for onshore wind, so most forecasts, well, we talk a lot about offshore. Onshore looks like it's still going to dominate for the future. You look at um, BNF, Blue Marine Energy Finance's 2050 climate scenario, like a net zero uh, emissions in 2050, and Generation from onshore wind is like five to ten times what it is from offshore. So onshore still looks like the dominant technology, uh, but the thing that really unlocks that in the U.S., one is can we unlock some of the infrastructure challenges that to allow us to build larger and larger turbines on land? Because now we have offshore turbines, the largest ones announced have like 115-meter blade lengths as opposed to high 70-meter blade lengths in on land, and that's largely a logistics problem. So that's one interesting area. And the, the other is transmission, because in the U.S. you have the the best onshore wind resource is in the interior, the Great Plains down to Texas. You've got amazing wind resource, relatively low population density, easier siting, but we don't have the transmission to move that power to the East Coast or the West Coast. And so I think one of the most important things in Biden's infrastructure plan is what he's doing on transmission. And there's you know two things there. One is $100 billion in tax credits for transmission. That's interesting. But maybe more importantly is this proposal to build a new federal agency to ease transmission build-out using existing rights-of-way along interstate highways and, and rail and so on. And that, I think, would massively unlock the build-out of wind power on land in the U.S. Okay, so Catherine, you sound pretty optimistic about the U.S.'s ability to build out this much new offshore wind. 
where do you fall on the optimism to pessimism range? I, I'm a little bit closer to pessimistic, although I, I believe it can be done. I think I'm bruised by the last 20 years of experience here. Well, you know I fall onto the rainbows and unicorns part of optimism. Um, so yeah, I think we can do it. I think you know we we have all the state plans in place. If federal government is playing and they have goals, I think we can meet the goals. I don't think they're going to be easy, but I think we could definitely do it. There's definitely a pent up demand. I think it's been proven out, and hopefully we'll start coming back from what has been pretty poor performance compared to the rest of the world. Ramez, what do you think? This offshore wind target and the continued expansion of onshore wind, how how optimistic are you? I'm cautiously optimistic, you know, with the caveat that work still has to be done at a policy level. Uh, but Biden's definitely talked about, you know, 80% of the right stuff. So, and a lot of that, you know, we'll see if the infrastructure, infrastructure bill gets passed, which it can by reconciliation, I think that'll help a lot. A quick break here to talk about our supporter of the show, and that is Aurora Solar. Last year, Aurora Solar brought together 4,000 solar professionals from over 15 countries for the Empower Virtual Summit, a free one-day event of learning, networking, and inspiration. This year, the summit is even bigger with two days of sessions featuring speakers like John Berger, the CEO of Sonova, and Bernadette Del Chiaro, the executive director of CalSA. You'll get a front row seat to the high stakes NEM policy battle in California and its potential for throwing a wrench in the industry's growth. You'll also learn how to expand your solar business into new markets like storage, EV charging, and smart controllers, and discover the best sales strategies for connecting with customers in a remote and hybrid world. Save your spot for Empower 2021. Go to slash energy gang or check out the link right there in the show notes on your phone. Franklin Roosevelt was the first president to use the first 100 days framing to talk about his progress with the New Deal. We now use it to judge the start of every presidency, fairly or not. It's largely a media construct now. But Biden did explicitly use it as a benchmark for his pandemic response, his economic agenda and his climate plan. So we're going to use it here, too. Last week marked 100 days of Biden's presidency. And after the Trump presidency, when the news cycle would shift multiple times a day, this actually felt like what 100 days is supposed to feel like. Biden marked the occasion with a speech to Congress that emphasized his blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America. And as he's been doing all along, he's drawing a very clear connection between taking action on climate change and building tons of jobs. And he's basically taking the priorities of the Green New Deal, but talking about it in a blue collar way, which I think is fairly effective. We'll see how effective that is in terms of passing additional legislation. So what has Biden accomplished so far that is meaningful? What is rhetorical? What is creating a clear pathway for real outcomes? Catherine, what do you think? I, I'm sure you have a long list in front of you that you're going to you're going to go down. <laughs> I do, but uh, Mother Jones actually put that list together, which I thought was pretty good. Which is, you know, the first thing he did was rejoin the Paris Climate a- Agreement. Then he signed an executive order on environmental protection. He signed an executive order on giving agencies more flexibility and directing them to do something on climate change. He issued an executive memorandum saying that the federal government needs to listen to science, which is really good. He created a presidential advisory council on science. He signed an executive order 
that puts climate crisis at the center of all foreign and domestic policy and national security. He signed an executive order looking mandating a review of climate change impacts on migration, national security, and international policy. He launched the Climate Innovation Working Group. He signed the American Rescue Plan Act, which was the $1.9 trillion plan for water system upgrades and a lot of other financial support uh, for local regulators and public infrastructure. Earth Day, he had the 40 world leaders together for the summit on climate. And then he's made a lot of pledges to slash U.S. greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030. So he's done a ton from where he is, from where he sits. Now, the trick will be, can he actually get durable solutions, which means those put into law? And of course, the the rescue plan did put things into law. But now, of course, we're waiting for you know, the American Jobs Plan, which is another $2.3 trillion pointed at infrastructure and climate, and then the American Families Plan, which is another one for human infrastructure. Is there anything from that list that you think is is already durable or will create durable progress? Yeah, some of the rolling back of Trump-era regulation stifling is going to, yes, create durability, because what it'll do is it'll send a signal to the private sector, uh, utilities and, you know, auto manufacturers, et cetera, that they're going to need to change the way they manufacture and conduct business. And I think that will give them enough of a signal. And there's enough of a global signal, in addition, given the Paris Accord and needing to ratchet up those commitments, that I think, yes, it will make a difference. Ramez, what do you make of this list? Is there anything that's particularly consequential that that's coming out of this first 100 days? Biden is doing everything that he can. I think he's doing quite well. And I think, you know, Climate diplomacy is important, and the use of executive authority can go a certain ways. But I want to caution that all of that has limits. You know, just as Obama's use of executive authority on climate through the, the Clean Power Plan, for instance, uh, ultimately was was inconsequential. I mean, it was, in, it was destined to be inconsequential from the very beginning. It was too conservative, but you know, ultimately didn't stand up. And just as Trump, who wanted to save coal, just couldn't do it with executive authority. Uh, what we actually really need is bills passed through Congress. And the most important thing Biden has done, in my mind, is this American Jobs Act infrastructure plan. And it's really quite aggressive on clean energy build-out in electricity, in mobility, uh, you know, electric transport, electrification of, of transport, building out chargers, and even in heavy industry, you know, for funding some projects there. So that, to me, is actually the most important thing. And it's still a battle. There's no guarantee that it'll get passed. Uh, but there's a decent chance that some variant of that will get passed. Uh, and nothing is more important than that. Uh, and it trumps. It's more important than everything else that Biden has done his first hundred days on climate by you know, a large single-digit multiplier, I would say. How do you think he's being judged from different ends of the spectrum? From the left, how do you think folks on the left are, are seeing this? It's so funny because his delivery seems very centrist. I mean, he even ended his big speech with, thank you for your patience. Like everything was very calm, very soft-spoken. But if you actually listen to what he's saying, it is really, really progressive, far more progressive than Obama. And he has said to Republicans, look, I want to listen to you. I want to make whatever I do bipartisan. I'm open for this. And that is his definitely his tone and his reputation. In the end, he got that rescue plan done without a single Republican vote, and he got it 
he got it done and he got huge approval ratings for it. So I think something's going to happen. Now we may need to, to think about we're going to need to give and take a little bit. So there is a bipartisan group that has offered some something a little bit about a half of what you know he wants with the 2.3 trillion that you know has some Republicans on board. He also the Senate Republicans have put forward a path that's like 500 billion dollars. That's not very much, and that's all for just you know very basic infrastructure projects. But I think he'll get something done. And the issue, as Ramez says, is what is it exactly is that going to include? But it could be significant. So this isn't exactly the perspective from the left. But what I think Biden is doing really well is playing off of the left quite well, because he's basically taking the last two years of the the far left wing of the Democratic Party's agenda and making it very palatable for people and couching it in this more blue collar mainstream economic development way. And Americans, a lot of Americans say they don't like big government, but they love government programs. And in fact, like most Americans don't mind government spending when they realize that it benefits them. And I think he's playing off of both of those two factors quite well. And he's navigating the politics, these, you know, slim majority politics as best he can. So I think he's done a really effective job at couching it in the right way that's palatable to as many people as possible and actually taking what is a pretty, you know, has been the agenda of the left wing of the Democratic Party and making it his mainstream agenda. Exactly. He doesn't have all these rhetorical flourishes that either end of the spectrum has. He sounds like he's right down the middle. But his idea is there's really no daylight between him and Bernie Sanders in the the way they're going to carry this out. And, you know, they're going to keep each other honest. They're going to make sure, as as will he and Senator Joe Manchin. I mean, they're going to get a lot done by doing this and couching it in terms of jobs. If you heard that speech, all he talked about was climate. When I hear climate, I hear jobs, jobs, jobs. And so that, to me, connects it to real people and to opportunity, where people before, I think, um, especially in the first Obama administration, when when we didn't have really cheap renewable resources at that time, um, they certainly weren't as cheap as they are now, it was really hard for people to say, how do I envision myself as part of the future? And there were a lot of people left behind in that future. But now, if you say, look, we're going to bring you jobs. This is all part of the economic recovery. And this is here for you. If you can connect those dots and help people envision it, they're going to support you. I agree with both of you, Catherine and Stephen. And I think, I think what Biden's doing is really smart. I think he's taken 80% of what the left talked about uh, in the Green New Deal and so on, and he's pitching to the center. And that's the way to get it done. Because if you talk about the Green New Deal, I think it, it actually rallies the base on the left, but it actually alienates the center and, and pushes away the right. You're not going to get Manchin's vote that way. I do think there's a bit of difference between what Biden's proposing and you know what Bernie Sanders proposed or AOC had proposed, which is he's not talking about uh, you know nationalizing the grid or nationalizing all power generation. I think that's actually very smart. I think it was a terrible policy idea in the Green New Deal. Market forces, when steered correctly, are incredibly powerful and are what drives a lot of this cost reduction. So I think what Biden's doing is quite smart. I think he'll get something that's much bigger than the GOP senator's uh, counterproposal. I think it'll pass through reconciliation and, and maybe with a couple GOP senators, maybe zero. And I think it's about Manchin. Right, and so it's going to be something that's maybe a little bit smaller than what he's proposed. It was proposed as two trillion, and actually, even the dollar amount is in some ways less important than some of the specifics. Things like the 
a national CES, National Clean Energy Standard of 80% by 2030, doesn't have to have a dollar figure attached to it. Right, but that, or it can actually be seen as a revenue generator. <laughs> it doesn't have to inflate the size of the bill, but that's a massively important policy. Uh, and getting that sort of stuff through no longer looks out of the realm of possibility. He might not get exactly that number by that year, but that's going to be very, very consequential. And I'm optimistic. How is this viewed from the right then? I mean, are there things that Biden is putting out there that are now suddenly more palatable because of the way he's framing this? I mean, clearly we've gotten to a new era where Republicans aren't denying climate change. They're just talking about big government spending and they're basically going to attack anything that Biden puts out anyway. So it's no surprise that they would attack his climate agenda. But it feels like we're normalizing things that were not normalized within the Republican Party just a couple of years ago. They're still talking about this being socialism. And, uh, you know, they're still talking about this as being some crazy left-wing greeny idea and that they're going to take your burgers, yeah, and all that. Take away your meat-based beer. <laughs> <laughs> right, your meat-based beer. So so I there's still the rhetoric, honestly. That's, that's not going to change, uh, which also leads me to believe that you're not going to get a lot of Republicans on board. But in the end, a lot of these Republican states are going to benefit enormously from the proposals that are in this infrastructure bill. And on some level— when you're get when you get elected by your people, you got to take something home, or you're not going to get reelected. So it'll be interesting to see how they end up spinning it if they all vote against it. And I think it is interesting to that point that there's daylight now. There's a gap between how Republican voters view this set of proposals and how the Republican establishment and media are talking about it, because the polling shows this is actually really popular. You know, polling has shown for a long time. Solar is the number one most popular energy source in the U.S. Wind is number two. Gas is 20 points below that. And coal is at the bottom, right? And so the voters like this idea of building infrastructure. They like bridges. They like roads. They like building solar. That's not a big problem. And so the GOP senators have to tread a little bit more carefully. And I do think there's hope. You know, again, it's about Manchin. You don't need any GOP senators to get this done through uh, reconciliation. And I think it's really smart that Biden just, just he's he's going to talk about bipartisanship, but he's just planning to actually get zero GOP senators and push it through reconciliation. But it's not impossible to get Susan Collins, right? Like she was pivotal in getting this energy bill passed in December of last year. Uh, she's a bit of a climate realist. And I think, you know, as long as you have some money in there for carbon capture and storage, you know, or things like that, money for job retraining for uh, workers in Appalachia, you've got a chance. And for oil well uh, workers in Alaska, you've got a chance to get Manchin and you've got a chance to get somebody like Susan Collins as well. Yeah, I think the bipartisan speak is as much for Manchin as for anybody else, because Manchin prefers to operate in a bipartisan way. He kind of has to. He's He represents a very, very red state, so he has to walk a very fine line. And so who I'm watching is Lisa Murkowski, because Alaska needs these programs. Alaska needs this bill very much. Alaska needs the accelerator, which is this $100 billion proposal for like a national green bank. I mean, Alaska would benefit enormously from that. And so watching her and seeing what she does, and she's in trouble right now in Alaska based on the polling. So it'll be interesting to see how then she decides to to, to vote. But I mean, depending on where she is, will I think influence where Manchin ends up. 
Yeah, and thank you, Catherine. I, I meant to say Lisa Murkowski, not Susan Collins. It was Lisa Murkowski, who was pivotal in the energy bill in December, and who I was thinking of, uh, though Susan Collins is also a possibility for this. But Murkowski is the, the, the Republican probably most likely to, to play along. So are there any sleeper issues, things that are less talked about publicly but are highly consequential that you're keeping your eyes on, Catherine? Yeah, so I'm keeping my eyes on the fact that the Biden administration has four pillars, covid and, and he's done an amazing job getting shots out. So like that's an incredible success from what I can see. Climate, we've talked about, he's been doing a lot on climate. The economy is doing better. We're only at 6% unemployment and we grew by 6.4%, up from 4.3% the previous quarter. The, the fourth pillar is racial justice. And I think that um, while they're all super tied together and he's tried to weave equity in everything he does around climate and the economy, I think that is the hardest thing to tackle. And there are a lot of groups, and I'm working on some of this too, but, but I think that that is going to take so much more intentional work to be able to meet the goals that he has in his administration. While we keep talking about the U.S., I think it's vital to think about what's happening globally and how Biden's you know, climate diplomacy and the passage of policy in the U.S. encourages it. And I think a couple of really big things have been happening. I mean, Europe has been in the lead of decarbonization for decades, and now in, in December, they lifted their, their binding EU law for decarbonization. It was a 40% reduction from 1990 levels by 2030. Now it's a 55% reduction from 1990 by 2030. So that's a big step. Uh, They've got an electricity sector law uh, they're going to be negotiating in July that will talk about specific decarbonization and that Europe-wide. And Europe is actively uh, discussing a binding net zero by 2050 law for the entire EU. And basically they can get Poland to come along. You know, Poland is sort of the West Virginia of Europe when it comes to, to coal. If they can get Poland to come along, that's there's a real chance of that being enacted this year or next year. So I think that's massive because that will start the scaling of technological solutions in other sectors like steel and cement, industrial emissions, hydrogen, aviation, whatever, that'll make it cheaper for us, like the Europe did for offshore wind. And then the other one, of course, the elephant in the room is always China. And with Xi announcing last year this net zero by 2060 goal, surprised everyone, but that's like Biden's climate pledge. It has no domestic policy teeth. And so I think that's where Biden's climate diplomacy and the work on this infrastructure bill domestically might have the most impact because it encourages Xi to actually, in China's five-year plan that will come out, I think, later this year, to put some teeth on that 2060 goal of what's going to happen in the next five years as far as Chinese energy and EV and industrial policy. And does China's central government get control of the provinces which are actually sort of running rampant, building coal that the central government doesn't want. Is she going to actually make some steps there? And so that's really important. And the steps in the U.S. you know, are not determinative of what China does, but they it definitely help encourage China to take bigger steps as well. Yeah, absolutely. And Biden has to show that this is not just 100 days or 1,000 days. This is a 10,000-day consequential plan and, and, and beyond so that other countries feel like the, the U.S. is going to stay firm in its commitments. Zeroing back into the localities of the U.S., I think one of the most consequential things we will be talking about within the, the Biden administration over the coming years is how effectively they deployed worker retraining programs and economic development opportunities and, you know, areas that have relied on coal and 
fossil fuel extraction. And we desperately need rural revitalization in this country. Many of those communities are in in coal, formerly coal-dependent communities. And so to the extent that the Biden team can do that effectively, where previous administrations have failed or not done a great job and can bring the unions along, the you know the United Mine, Mine Workers along that has now signaled that they want a piece of the political action, that will be one of the most consequential pieces of his total plan. All right, let's go back internationally and talk about what's happening on the gas front with methane. So Vladimir Putin is not exactly a climate champion, but he did something pretty notable at America's virtual climate summit in April. He called for strong regulations to capture methane. Russia is the world's biggest methane emitter, according to the International Energy Agency, and that comes from flaring, from leaking, from venting, from oil and gas operations. And one of the reasons that Putin is backing methane targets is because methane leaks are pretty preventable, They're not that expensive to prevent. And one of the reasons that Putin is backing methane targets is because methane leaks are a mostly preventable and not that expensive problem to solve. Methane has extremely high warming potential, so slashing it is going to have vital positive climate impacts in the shorter term. It's why the United Nations is now turning its focus to methane, saying that dramatic efforts to cap emissions are needed to limit temperature rise under the Paris Agreement. And the UN is set to release this big report This month, according to reporting in The New York Times, the U.N. experts are expected to conclude that expanding natural gas because of methane leaks is incompatible with current warming targets. That's yet another indication that natural gas is no longer considered the bridge fuel it once was. It's been a pretty massive change in, in perception of natural gas over the last couple of years. Catherine, why is the focus turning from CO2 to CH4 internationally? Yeah, I mean, methane warms 80 times more than CO2 over 20 years. And if you curb methane emissions, you have an immediate result. You can see it in a lifetime as opposed to CO2, which takes a much, much longer time to see the results of. So the UN Environmental Program issued their first global methane assessment. And if we lower methane emissions by 45% by 2030, it will lower deaths by 225,000, hospitalizations by over 700,000, 73 billion hours of lost labor because of extreme heat would be averted, and then 26 million metric tons of crop losses would avoid. So it's really significant, and it's something that if you if you put policies in place now, you will see results immediately. Ramez, do you think this is changing how we're talking about and build out natural gas internationally? Does this represent anything different to you? I think there is interesting stuff happening. I think this this emphasis on uh, methane leakage is, that's the low-hanging fruit. That's a huge impact right away. But I think there's also, you know, the bloom is off the rose a bit for natural gas consumption for the power sector, industry, and so on globally. It's still going to grow. You know, if we're looking at the peak of coal demand happened in 2013. Peak of oil demand is, you know, we're close to it now. Maybe it's the middle of this decade. Natural gas consumption is probably still going to go glo- grow globally for some time, led by Asia. But you start to see, you know, peaks of it happening in certain places. In the U.S., we might be close to the peak of natural gas consumption in the power sector. It's been growing for a while. But in the next few years, the solar and wind take off even more. The EU, with their decarbonization policies, they're you know, going to start to talk about reducing gas 
in the power sector, but also electrifying buildings. But maybe most interestingly is, you know, Japan, until recently, the number one LNG importer in the world. So the LNG market is really geared around selling natural gas to, to Asia. Japan now talking about uh, a massive decarbonization of its power sector and even looking at things like importing green ammonia or blue ammonia made from clean hydrogen instead of or as a supplement to LNG and trying to turn away first from coal, Japan sells a lot of coal, but turn away from gas ultimately. Singapore, that is not a big country, uh, but natural gas, its entire power sector. Now, you know, looking closely at Sun Cable's proposal for a big solar and HVDC project from Australia as a way to shut off natural gas power gen. So I think that's actually, you know, quite interesting. And we're we're still a ways away from the peak of gas, but you see the early indicators of countries investing in stuff to, to move away from that. I'm not fully convinced that we're at a peak of natural gas here in the U.S. because Dr. Leah Stokes at University of California, Santa Barbara, co-wrote this report with the Sierra Club showing that actually if you look at utility climate plans and go through their their resource plans, like there's still a lot of natural gas in the queue. There's, of course, historic amounts of wind and solar, but there are a lot of companies still planning to build out natural gas plants. And consequently, we had Justin Gway of the Sunrise Project on the show um, last week, and, and he pointed to some research from Oxford University uh, that showed that it's actually getting cheaper to finance natural gas plants. And one wonders what is happening there. So I, I feel like there are still there's there's still going to be a lot of natural gas built out, but I think some of the pressure from groups here in the United States may end up changing that. But what is changing certainly is the willingness of the industry here in the U.S., both the oil and gas industry, to cap methane emissions, and that's because it's not wildly expensive to cap point source emissions and. Catherine, this has been playing out politically here in the U.S. What's going on with methane regulations here? Yeah, so methane's 10% of the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, just to put that in a little in perspective. And there are already a number of states with methane regs, Texas, Wyoming. These, these are gas states, right? Wyoming, Louisiana, Maryland, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Illinois. So a lot of states already have pretty good standards for methane reduction. And during the Obama administration, there was a rule put in place that the Trump administration then overturned. Well, just the other week, um, Senator Martin Heinrich from New Mexico offered was sponsored a Congressional Review Act movement on the Senate floor, which basically said you have a certain number of days, 60 days of con- Congress being in session to be able to overturn rulemakings within a certain amount of time. And what they did was they overturned the overturn. <laughs> so now we're back to what the Obama administration put into place. Now, industry realizes they can also make a lot of money for just almost doing nothing. Um, and there are things that you can do just that are so cost-effective and can have enormous results. So the Clean Air Task Force showed a path to 65% reduction in these emissions. This goes beyond just going through to the Obama level, but really kind of taking it to the next level. How do we not just stop leaks But there's so many other pieces of equipment affiliated with the oil and gas industry, pneumatic equipment that uses gas. There are 
storage tanks that leak gas. There are well completions and workovers. There are just so many ways in which gas gets out of the system that methane gets out that can be resolved by doing fairly simple things that don't require a huge amount of new technological innovation. And so now that we've had this action in the Senate, which I thought was crucially important as the first step, now what we need to do is make sure that EPA then puts another set of regulations in place that really puts some hard numbers to it to make sure that we do reach those goals and we'll have an immediate impact if we do. So Catherine, how do you expect that to play out internationally then? Yeah, so globally, the oil and gas industry is putting a lot of money into new methane emission technologies and trying to get their head around how do they actually reduce methane in this sector. I think that's an excellent point that Catherine just made. If you look at the oil and gas industry around the world, there's a lot of emphasis on reducing their scope one and scope two emissions. So not the emissions uh, that come from burning their product, but the emissions associated with producing it and refining it and so on. And one of those big ones is methane leaks from production uh, and transport. And so, you know, companies want to do that because they feel like that's some way that they can articulate that they're going green. The companies want to be able to make claims like, we have the cleanest natural gas of anyone because they're the lowest leakage rate or the least fuel use and production. And so I think that is a driver for things like uh, reducing leakage, which is definitely the lowest hanging fruit. Time to wrap up the show. We've got some free electrons for you, things that are keeping us interested, new and novel things in our lives, stuff we're reading. Catherine, what's your free electron? All right, so bear with me. This is a little bit of a thought experiment. And uh, you all can blame it on the fact that my father's a philosopher, so I tend to think about stuff a lot. I was listening, I was trying to get ready for this episode, honestly, and try to figure out a free electron. And I listened to sort of randomly, I gave up, and I listened to the podcast, uh, Chris Hayes, Why Is This Happening? And it was an interview of Michael Lewis, talking about his book, The Premonition, and it was about the pandemic and really about this failure in two extremes with COVID. One was the failure at the top of of not fearing risk, of being reckless. So, you know, President Trump just didn't, he never had any consequences from risks he took. And so he was he was just completely oblivious to risk. And then the people in, in the other parts of the government who were super risk averse and super cautious. And so because you have these two things and you don't have people stitching it together, it was, it was very hard for them to get anything done. And what Michael Lewis made the point of in this discussion was that it shouldn't have become an ideological issue. It should have just been technocratic, pragmatic, bureaucratic. And I started thinking, well, what if we did that with climate? What if we just took all the emotion and ideology out of it and we said, all right, we are going to just follow science. We have this 1.5 degrees Celsius issue, and we need to figure out what it's going to take and make it very outcome-based, very pragmatic, very much about what do we get done. And as I was going down that rabbit hole, I realized, well, there was no big pandemic as there is big oil and gas, um, and that there are winners and losers when you talk about climate. And so that puts it into a little different realm. But I love the idea of, like, let's not think about this ideologically, but think about it as this is a global crisis and we have to figure out a way to deal with it on a pragmatic basis. Well, I certainly agree with you in theory. That's obviously not what the politics would allow. Uh, Boy, Michael Lewis, he's really good at writing about political and societal catastrophes in real time. I mean, literally, like if you can go down every major crisis we've faced since the 80s, He's written a really good book about it, so um, I'll have to check that one out. 
Ramez, what is on your mind? What are you reading about? What are you thinking about? There's a great piece by David Roberts today that summarizes something that happened in my state of Washington, uh, you know, the Washington, the Northwest, which is that Washington state now has the nation's most ambitious climate policy. Uh, We just passed a climate commitment act that's a cap and invest bill that forces a 95% reduction in carbon emissions by 2045 or 2050. And I think it's, you know, it's fascinating to me that during the Trump years, while Trump failed federally to really do much impact to clean energy, in my mind, you had this flourish of states blue states primarily, but even some purple and some red, taking action on climate. I think with a backlash against Trump. And so now we have, between California, New York, Oregon, Washington, a number of others, we have a lot of states that are really leading the charge and have these almost complete decarbonization by 2045 or 2050 bills on the books. And that, I think, is amazing because, you know, a small political area can do a lot to bootstrap decarbonization tech, start it down its learning curve, make it cheaper for everyone. Uh, so I, it's just great to see that. And no matter what Biden does or does not accomplish, and I'm optimistic there, I think U.S. states will continue to lead the charge within the U.S. on decarbonization. And so David Roberts at Volts, you know, volts.wtf, uh, it's the lead article on his page today if you want to check it out. Yeah, bravo. That's incredible. I was caught by recent reporting about Tesla's change in pricing around its solar roof. So about five years ago, Tesla or Elon Musk unveiled their solar shingle product. They said they were going to have three different types of solar shingles, and they were going to manufacture the product in Buffalo. And over the years, it became clear that they were having manufacturing problems. They were only going to have one product. They were installing it on limited rooftops. They had long wait lines, and they weren't communicating with customers. And There were a lot of concerns about whether that product would even work. Low efficiencies, uh, low lifetimes, high costs as a result. And pretty much every prediction about those solar shingles has come true. Tesla has dramatically raised the prices on its solar shingle systems. It's not rolled out very many systems. It is still reportedly doing really poor customer service. And it has basically taken one of the most robust solar businesses and, and turned it into you know, a shell of itself. Now, given when it acquired Solar City, Solar City had all sorts of debt problems, and it was clear that that acquisition was a form of a bailout. But Tesla had this real opportunity to use its prowess to build out a real solar business. I feel like the, you know, I don't want to stifle the innovation of someone like Elon Musk, right? Like, it's very possible that I could be saying, oh, well, you know what? I was skeptical of this product and Elon proved me wrong because he's probably going to prove people wrong continually over the years. But he had such a great opportunity to innovate, to take the power wall, to take you know, innovations in conventional solar and like to innovate around heat pumps and create like a whole home product that could dramatically accelerate um, carbon emission declines in the residential sector and to use its existing sales team that it acquired under Solar City. It had the infrastructure in place to make that a reality and it was it was squandered. And I f- want to entirely support making big, bold bets on new technologies. But there were enough pieces in place that 
leave me scratching my head about why they went down this route and why Tesla is still fairly inconsequential in solar. But he built a rocket. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> I'm with you, Stephen. The solar roof never made sense as a product to me. It was just massively overpriced. You know, I think maybe Elon, you know, from his Tesla experience, was building a very premium product uh, and then eventually scaling it down. So maybe that's his strategy, and that maybe that's what makes sense to him. Eventually, we'll get solar shingles that are really cheap and look good. But for now, it's just out of the price segment of, you know, conventional solar panels on your roof. Yeah, back during the Clinton administration, I remember NREL had developed a, you know, a shingle, a solar shingle, and I had one, and the White House wanted it, so I mailed it to them, and evidently it shut it down. They thought it was a bomb. <laughs> yeah, they just suffered from degradation issues, low efficiencies, and the calculations I've seen is that the Tesla solar roof product is somewhere around ten percent efficiency. And, you know, conventional panels are over eighteen percent efficiency, so pretty dramatic difference. Well, that's all I got. That's the end of the show. Ramez, thank you so much for being here. Really good to see you. Such an honor. So much fun. Great to see you, Stephen. Great to see you, Catherine. Yes. And I'm no jigger, but you know, I'll try to, to do my part. <laughs> you brought your game. This was <laughs> so much fun. Absolutely. That was great. Thanks, Ramez. Catherine, good to see you. You too. I am Stephen Lacey. Catherine Hamilton is my co-host. Ramez Nam joined us this week. You can find all our episodes, our hundreds and hundreds of back catalog episodes anywhere you get your podcasts. And hit us up on social media if you've got some, you know, commentary, questions, concerns. We do read all your messages and they influence the show. So thanks. And give us a rating and review because it helps others find the show or just send a link to your friends and colleagues. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for being here.